But now we don't have any value. I'm in a, I'm in great pain. Oh no. Yeah, I got a yeah. So uh, this is part of the lore. I got a mold poisoned by uh, an old apartment. Go. And between that and some uh, nerve damage I have, because I got that cool, sweet, sweet nerve damage, uh, my <laughs> lungs now constantly produce a low level of foam. <laughs> this Ooh, made yeah. the COVID years extra. I mean, this actually. Oh God, I can imagine. This is really relevant, actually, to to what you're right. I was just rereading the introduction um, of your book. Uh, how how's that for a cold transition? Demons. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, talk, talk about your foam some more. Yeah, the the level of I mean, there's a specific kind of uh, I mean, we saw the reckoning of it culturally everywhere, but it just went unnamed in a lot of places. Like this deep existential reckoning when you're facing something like that, especially if you have a a pre-existing condition where you're like, oh oh yeah. god, that that one's gonna add on top that like I've been a working class schmuck my whole life. Hence, why uh, a big re- a big reason why the Marxism appeals to me. It's yeah, I'm like, oh, he's talking about me. Um, so working in fields where like I really didn't have the uh, the option to not go out with where people were, because uh, if that was the case, I would get evicted. So it's like, cool, I'm just gonna roll the dice. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, prompts a lot of. Um, a lot of the things you wind up interrogating in your book, it turns out, sat very heavily on my mind. Uh, well, I'm I'm glad it resonated, but you know, at the same time, maybe <laughs> glad's not the word. But... Yeah, it's. I mean, that isn't that the constant rub of anyone writing something, especially about like um, relatively intense topics to other people? Like you're really gra- when you're really trying to grapple with the material conditions of the global working class. Or the kind of broadly existential condition of like embodiment that that we run into of like you know the the terror of the fidelity of the body of of one of the fundamental uh, terrors of the working class is the terror of like I will be chewed up and killed by those above me um, like the way serfs in Russia were prior to the prior to the revolution where you have like the absolutely abysmal like life expectancy of something like forty. Um, mm prior to the revolution, which is fucking wild. Um, yeah, it, ter- it turns out that this work resonates a lot more if you also carry a bit of that, uh, uh, a bit of, a bit of that terror, just a, just a little bit of the, uh, I mean, it's the negative cost, I think, right, of a rise of consciousness, that like, what is the thing rising in your consciousness to become, uh, to, to make this resonant, and it's uh, the thing that Siddhartha went through, you know, being being a prince in a palace until he sees a bird die and then goes, Oh God, like, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got to go invent Buddhism. That bird rocked. <laughs> so yeah, it's, a, it's a double, double edged sword to sort of recognizing your, your suffering. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a necessary stage to actually doing anything about it, or at least on a, on a personal level anyway. Yeah. Um, I, but it can also intensify the experience of it. <clears throat> so we've um, we've accidentally started the episode. Uh, welcome to Death Sentence for this week. <laughs> um, so we've got uh, Graham Jones with us. He's the author of Red Enlightenment, which is out on Repeater Books. 
which is where like half of the books we, we talk about come from, it seems. We love you, Repeater. Yeah, keep sending us <laughs> books. Um, yeah, uh, so Red Enlightenment was one of those ones where we were like, oh shit, we, yeah, we gotta do this. Yeah. Like, I can take and leave the Repeater book about cricket, but um, yeah, Red Enlightenment, <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta be doing this. I'm, I'm sure the cricket book's great. I just don't do it. I'm but, too um, American. I, I would, I, yeah, I would not fucking understand a single word. Yeah, don't be like, yeah, you'd be like, why are there only two bases to go to, and why is no one particularly drunk? <laughs> what, little, is, what do you mean this on? game has been going on for three days? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand how that happens. Did they, they not they know how to play? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's just my patience. Yeah. If um, the game goes on that long, does that mean you're good at cricket or bad at cricket? <laughs> I don't know. I think just cricket is bad. Um, okay, so Red Enlightenment is is good as hell. Um, but Thank you. I want to start this uh, discussion of a very good book that deals with a lot of big topics very well with a really stupid question. And we're going to ramp up smartness. <laughs> <knows this thing. laughs> oh, it, will, it, it will be. This is a really dumb question. Which is, is communism a religion? See, told you okay. the question. <laughs> uh, is communism a religion? So, um, at least in terms of the way that I approach those two concepts in the book, I would say it's probably no, but... Um, there are certainly there are there can be affinities in how we approach both of them um and yeah like rather than seeing either of them as either like equivalent concepts or completely separate to sort of see them as both kind of like being quite multiple having lots of different sides and there's actually probably more crossover um than is often acknowledged um at least in terms of so i mean i guess we're, we're diving actually uh, you say it's a stupid question but it's actually like probably one of the the sort of more the, the the deeper ones because it kind of gets us into what do we even mean by a term like religion and one of the things i stress in the book is that whatever position people on the left are taking with religion often there's just a huge problem with the whole conversation in that it doesn't really even attempt to understand what religion is in the first place and reduces religion down to this very simple concept when actually it is quite a diffuse complex multi kind of faceted sort of thing that has you know we, we can talk about anything from people's beliefs um their sort of their daily actions, their dress, their community, the scripture that's involved, the whole sort of global community, any sort of hierarchical church versus just sort of informal community, um, the mythology. There's so many different aspects and different religions, foreground and background, different um, aspects of what we might think of as, as religion. And it becomes very difficult the more that you look at religions as they are actually practiced to really tie down exactly what that thing is and so like the, the more you think about it the more you think about and, and look into the concept of of religion as it's actually lived the harder it becomes to actually even answer um questions that 
you know, want want you to give a sort of a yes no answer to something like religion. It's like making you know uh, generalizations about a concept like society that it can be very difficult to tie down what that word even means or a word like community that touches a lot that touches a lot on um an aspect that comes up in conversations that i have with with certain people in my life a lot about specifically um i typically use catholicism as the uh the go-to thing i'm not catholic myself but the, the presence of the fact that you can go into any catholic church and they have the catechism there, which on paper is an explication of all their beliefs with scriptural citations of where those arise. And so in theory, whether you're a practicing Catholic or not, leaning more on the side of if you're a practicing Catholic, you can find up-to-date free copies. They hand these out. These are not hidden. These are not, uh, they typically don't charge for them. They want you to read them. And it'll tell you exactly what the official stances of the church are. Now, if you compare that with what uh, lay Catholics actually believe, you'll start finding an immediate sense of the of the diffuse nature of what constitutes Catholicism. Because in this case, we have we have an explicit text that says, if you say you're Catholic, you should think this. But typically, even within one congregation, you'll find each person lands differently on different topics that on paper, they're not supposed to land differently on at all. And they will land differently from the, uh, the head of the parish who will land differently from the heads of different parishes around them. And so we start seeing this like <clears throat> inherent multiplicity that arises whenever these things contact the human psyche, which is then yeah. a, a major bugbear for specific kinds of orthodox Marxist or vulgar materialist um, approaches to analyzing the world. That's something that, that we talk about a hell of a lot on here. That like the fact that the mind can contain contradiction and that so much of the theory texts that we have that ground a lot of left politics are predicated, and even scientific texts are predicated on this notion that contradiction automatically resolves itself. Or if you've witnessed contradiction, it's because you're viewing the, the problem wrong. Um, in order to not see how these things are actually resonant. Meanwhile, the psyche, which arises from the real material substrate of the brain, it's not, <clears throat> it's not a fanciful or fictional thing that we have a mind that is experiencing the world. It's just that it does arise from something material. That suddenly can contain all these weird contradictions that by nature give birth to massive levels of multiplicity and just that's one of the things that i found really engaging about your text is that you actually um you take that seriously rather than seeing the frankly like asinine levels of triage that i see in other places where it feels like they just want to hand wave that away and mm. then they wind up accidentally giving substantially oversimplified social models or psychological models because they really don't it, it, to be fair, it's frightening to to stare down the barrel of how complex and labyrinthine um, both the mind and phenomenological experience are when pushed up against materialism. Yeah, yeah, and like the example that you're you, you're giving examples around catholicism, and and that's that's even like you know among world religions, catholicism is like one of the ones which 
has the strongest emphasis on doctrinal or orthodoxy and yet even yeah. then you see a, a, a multiplicity and then there are other religions where that's not even really a huge concern or it's much less of a concern like trying to make sure that everybody believes exactly the same thing so um as soon as you're talking about religion in the abstract then it becomes very difficult uh, and i think that that also that also reveals that a lot of the time you know western leftists when they talk about religion uh particularly in a negative light they're usually talking actually about a particular mode of christianity um they're not really investigating what religion might be in a in a broader sense but yeah this this idea like you're, you're saying about um facing up to the sort of the inherent Con like contradictions uh, within people's belief systems. I think that's that's an, a, an important thing to even like expand beyond religion. Um, the one that always that always comes back to me is is recognizing that you know being on the left, uh, being you know uh, without sounding too pompous about it, relatively politically ed educated. In fact, whether you're left or right, to have this kind of very stable or relatively stable sort of you know. Um, political ethical kind of position is actually not how the vast majority of people approach the world um and often when we're talking about you know um this particularly comes up a lot around elections and people's voting intentions there can be a, a tendency on the left to imagine that there are people out there who are just they're either left or right or liberal rather than recognizing that you know you can go up to completely you can go up to, to random people and start having conversations and without again without and i don't mean this in a sort of a patronizing way but people can come out with things which to like to me might seem very contradictory they might be saying something that is borderline sort of communist and socialist at, at one moment and then come out with something like rabidly racist and then not necessarily see the contradiction because they haven't um necessarily formed some sort of like overarching sort of political framework to fit everything into they've just sort of built up a variety of positions through what they have witnessed in their life what they've seen on the me in the media what their friends have been saying and it just sort of like often people's opinions kind of swim in this really kind of complex and strange mixture of 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 what i would see as differing positions and i think that's really important to recognize that kind of um that messiness of people's beliefs um if we're going to have any hope of you know of propaganda actually working propaganda in the neutral sense like if we're actually going to change people's minds if we're going to bring people on board if we're going to grow movements we have to recognize that people aren't coming necessarily from very easy to categorize positions um and we have to recognize how people can be shaped in certain directions but it's not necessarily fully determinative um it's only really those of us at the kind of like the margin maybe margins is the right word but those of us who, who spend a lot of time thinking and acting politically that have these very sharply defined or relatively i should say sharply defined uh, political positions so like, whether we're talking about just political belief or religious belief i think maybe that yeah using that as a sort of a, a framework for just looking at how people interact with the world is um seeing it as much much messier um is that's a really important thing but it also opens up a lot of possibility because that means there are there are more you know when there's there's more sort of like breakage there's more sort of messiness there's more potential to actually reshape things rather than seeing people as either you know primarily for us or against us i i like 
I, I find actually quite soothing how you enunciated there in the midst of doing that. The actual position, real, um, <clears throat> I'm responding to the, the of course, scourge of my life as a communist, which is um, communists on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> loathsome yeah. creatures. Uh, specifically seeing the things of like, if you're not willing to join arm in arm with a racist, because even though they're part of the working class, you're not for communism. And it's like, I, I twist up every time I see that because there it basically you said the the actual thought behind those things where it's like no it's not that you're condoning certain things it's that the reality of where people are um and trying to meet them and rise them up uh or raise their consciousness up in order to be able to be uh firm comrades you have to be able to bear witness to the complex and frustrating multiplicity of 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 people and like there has to be you have to be anti-misanthropic on some very real level that like you're going to see some messy and confusing and deeply hurtful aspects of people but you either give up because you don't already have the numbers or you go this is the world in which i need to work um but that work being itself, you know, by nature, a transformative one rather than the the dipshit version of like, no, you also got to anytime they say a slur, you got to clap. You got to make them go feel real comfortable with it. Be like, no, that's not. No, that's not what we're saying. Why are you saying that that's what we're saying? Like, stop. You're speaking for me right now. And that is not what I am saying. Um, so kind of following on that idea, we've got kind of inherent messiness. One of the cool things I've learned from your book is that the history of religion and communism was a lot messier than I realized it was. I mean, everyone knows the whole opiate and the masses bit, and has, if you're a bit grown up, you probably know, you've probably heard the old thing that, yeah, sometimes people need opiates. It's not, Marx isn't saying that uh, they're a terrible poison that should be eliminated. But the um, part of your book about the uh, God-creating project in the Soviet Union. Mm. That, that was interesting as hell. I'd always assumed you know, Soviet Union was pretty cut and dry when it to, came to religion. They tolerated the Orthodox Church, but in their own doctrine, you know, religion was verboten. Uh, but they were trying to make a God. Um, yeah, yeah can you, so... Kind of. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so the, the God-building sort of project um, within the Bolsheviks, Lunacharsky, um, Anatoly Lunacharsky being the sort of the, the main driving person. It's, I mean, they, they were, as far as I'm aware, they were mainly sort of agnostics. Um, their sort of position was, um, was Lunacharsky's position was that there is actually a lot to be learned from religion and there are aspects of religion um that are worth kind of um retaining and that um cooperation with those with religious people and religious groups at least those that are um you know that, that are open to sort of um to the revolution that there is a lot of space there rather than sort of uh, the, the typical sort of like reject or re rejection of all religion that was you know, that, that was the typical sort of Bolshevik position. Um, in terms of um, what they meant by God building, it's um, this was more sort of a case of sort of seeing the, the people as these sort of like perfect, more perf 
like perfectible beings that the revolution was more than just an economic um sort of movement it was about changing how people were how people thought how people acted and sort of you know improving them through education um in the sense is, is of this what, um what they call like the new socialist man yeah so i think it did sort of like tie in with that that whole sort of thing um and yeah like soviet psychology at the time was was thinking very much in those kind of terms i think with the god building project it was more just sort of like tying that into this more sort of um sort of religious framework um now i'm not saying we should necessarily like do exactly quite like how they were but i think it's very interesting to know that it's it wasn't just as cut and dry as you know um russian revolution equals no religion um even even Lenin softened on his position um, over time. Like at first, he was very against the whole God building project, and then eventually, he actually, um, you know, he stayed close to Lunacharsky and then made him the Commissar of Enlightenment, as they called it. I love um, that title. I know. I think if anyone on this call deserves it, it's you, Graham, because you wrote a book on it. But um, you know, I like, could be like your understudy if you, you know, in case you get hit by a bus. I, I become <laughs> a newcomer, sorry for enlightenment. I'd watch out because that makes me think very strongly that he's got a bus shaped uh, uh, itinerary for you. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to replace you at the head of the Department of Enlightenment. Um, and I heard that the that whole uh, kind of softening on religion on Lenin's part came after he, he kind of went away and encountered Hegel for the first time, yeah. like really sat down and, and read some Hegel. Is that correct, Rene? That, that's that's as I have heard it. Yeah, um, uh, quite intensive study of Hegel from what from it seemed, and yeah, the, he after that. Um, I think I think maybe this is um, something that is often kind of missed, and maybe this goes back to kind of we'll probably end up constantly going back to the multiplicity thing. Um, just like pull back a little, it's so easy to to reduce a historical figure to a position um, rather than seeing them as a multiplicity and seeing them as 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 kind of as infinitely complex as we maybe see each other. Um, I mean, even, that's even, a even thing that I bring up to people a lot, specifically yeah. with. It turns out that if you're a communist, the first thing that uh, most dipshits wind up going is uh, blah 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 Stalin, and then you have to go like he he did a lot of political actions over many decades. What are we talking about? Like, yeah, I can find ones that I don't agree with, but I that's not this is not a fruitful. Uh, all to say that holy shit, I feel you on that one. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like, e even like, I mean, periodization is 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 it can be important. Saying, oh, at this this point in their life, they had this opinion, and this 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 point they had another one. Even then, I think it's important to to see people as like contradictory, even within a certain moment, not just you know their younger self and their older self. Yeah. Um. And you know what you were, what you were just saying about you know what pe how people approach communists. Um, that's how I 
in terms of you know uh, since we're talking about the Russian Revolution, I I, I find anyone who has uh, an absolute kind of positive or negative approach to the Soviet Union, I find that a bit strange because like you said, we're talking about decades. We're talking about enormous you know geographical spread we're talking about an incredibly complex sort of hierarchy of things that produced an incredibly sort of like contradictory set of outcomes like there were there are some things that are you know at least for anyone who's vaguely humanist are unambiguously bad and some things which are kind of unambiguously good and so i find it very like very strange that people can have you know a, a totalizingly this is absolutely perfectly brilliant or this is absolutely unconscionable in every in every way um and i don't think it's um i don't think it's sort of like sitting on the fence to to notice that complexity i do recognize that a lot of people do sit on the fence in terms of things like um it, the, the, i think sometimes there's a collapse between recognizing complexity and being a liberal <laughs> like um there's it's important to uh, maintain a distinction between those two things it's not saying i am going to position myself ethically within this kind of middle ground on in in you know every every question but simply recognizing that you know if i do decide to come down on one side or the other on a particular question i'm not rejecting all of the you know the the difficulty and complexity that um you know surrounds that i think it's possible I mean, to take a position on 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 like the soviet union for one thing whilst not at the same time saying you know it was one or the other so we have a model of this obviously within um especially um contemporary communist thought of specifically and it, it being grounded in what Hegel was doing with sort of challenging the Leibnizian like monadic approach to thought of like, there really isn't a thought that cannot be cracked open to find more mechanics inside it. Like this becomes a dead end. Um, yeah. And once you do that, suddenly you now open yourself up for a lot more and both a lot more in terms of quantity, but also a lot more in terms of quality of dialectical action that suddenly like we're tasked if we're to take communism seriously and the study of communism seriously to take a long critical look at projects like the USSR or um, uh, DPRK or like what Thomas Sankara did or uh, what Ho Chi Minh did, all these various things. And not to simply be cheerleaders, not to simply be detractors, but to have the real rigor of like what things were successful, what things weren't, what things matched up to what was desired, what things maybe panned out better than were thought, what things didn't. Um, and I think people, so there's a level that I find quite um, resonant with uh, religiosity. And it's one reason why it's kind of stuck around in my head, even though somewhere deep in my bones, I'm an atheist. There's still that it's hard to be alive, though, and not have a spiritual component. Um, I would be quite uh, one thing that resonated a lot with me is I've also lost my father. And there's something really hard to convey to people who haven't gone through something like that, that it it stokes this kind of human fire in you. That's in many in many, many ways, like deeply anti-rational, but it's also like pressingly pressingly real in terms of a thing that you're experiencing um and it's something that people like us get to square of like wait no i'm a no i'm a materialist what no um <laughs> but uh that there is 
there's a specific Christian mystic text that I like quite a bit called the cloud of unknowing, um, which it's, it specifically posits that basically the, the total effulgence of God and the immense complexity of what constitutes the Godhead is so vast and overwhelming that looking into it would be like staring into darkness because the brightness would, the metaphorical brightness would blind you and you'd be rendered incapable of really grappling with the enormity of as as you cite uh throughout your book the reality of like grappling with the infinite which is mirrored in the material sense in the sense of levels of potentiality like maybe it's not literally infinite but we can get big enough numbers that it can become functionally infinite um and we see there there's a level of humility that i find that gets driven into in specific modes of religious thought of humbling yourself before the immensity of other things so that you can then go like okay now i can do the daily practice but i'm not going to delude myself necessarily into thinking um i am looking at all of the world when i look at this one aspect of the world like you have to constantly remind yourself that like creation is far greater and grander than than what i'm merely witnessing and we see unfortunately this um but I think this deeply negative intellectual habit on certain people, especially people who want to be um, more engaged in communist or socialist projects or thoughts of functionally undoing a lot of that humility and presenting falsely this idea that we've already answered a huge number of questions or that there's a single answer that is static over time uh, and cultures uh, rather than, you know, really really embracing that deep multiplicity. I think that's where we wind up seeing a lot of um, things like the rise of, I live in America where communism is a shit show. Um, and we have, ma- we have MAGA communists, which is uh, a fucking joke. <laughs> we don't have those at all, but maybe we get some like UKIP communists at some point. Oh God. <laughs> I- <laughs> oh, oh, I hate being alive sometimes. Oh, that's yeah, MI5, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a great idea for how to destroy the left even more. It's called UKIP Communists. Give me a call. <laughs> oh, Sadly, oh. I think it might actually work. Like the amount, <laughs> like, you know, the amount of people that are, um, you know, pro-nationalization, it's actually like among the average person, it's, it's just everybody believes it pretty much. So you, you can blo- combine a bit of, you know, economic nationalism with uh with a, just a little little dash of of uh anti-immigrant racism and they probably do very well unfortunately <laughs> oh my god yeah you're the so let's, let's not right talk about it too much in case we give anyone any ideas yeah, step away from the wave of heaven yeah oh, what, oh, what you're saying about what you're saying about like um yeah cr- basically ha- having to like crack open a simple concept and like recognize its underlying complexity like that, that as far as i understand it that's that's kind of what was that's dialectics that's what yeah. should be meant by dialectics and yet so many so many people who you know they they want to talk about dialectics don't seem to actually do do it very much um but um yeah this sort of um the the fault the false simplicity um I think one of the one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, I guess, like maybe this is more abstract than like the, you know, we're talking about the particular content of things like religion or whatever, is actually trying to uh, 
maybe not maybe reshape is too strong a word, but to try and um, encourage people to develop different intellectual habits, to to develop a habit of looking at the world um, through a lens of complexity and always searching for that complexity. Um, and, and a lot a lot of the book is actually quite, you know, you could call it a, a book of dialectical materialism if you wanted to. And, and but I don't just I just don't really use those terms. I have that one section where I explore those those two concepts. Um, for the most part, I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say the book is, you know, this is dialectical materialism. But I think you probably could call it that. It's basically trying to get people to use that sort of dialectical way of thinking, of experiencing um, in a very sort of embodied way and not just in a purely dry intellectual sense, but actually you know, through your eyes, through your ears, through your through all of your senses, um, trying to experience the world whereby you see these very obvious, um, you know, holes and you're always constantly thinking, well, what are the parts? How are they broken down? How are those parts, you know, uh, working together or conflicting against one another? What other questions these bring up? What is unseen, particularly, as you say, like uh, I, I I stress quite a lot the the notion of potential and the um, yes, let's say functional infinity of of potential. Um, and I think that is that notion. Um, I mean, we, we we're talking about it first of all in this sort of like spiritual sense. If we, you know, we can look at the world around us, even just on the phys just physical objects, and go beyond seeing them as merely static things that are here and now and actually see things in terms of you know um embodied in them is the potential to be something else uh, the potential to be used in a different way to be reshaped in a different way for it to um um to assist us in different ways to to come into new combinations there's always sort of potential underlying all things and that can be the basis of, of you know this kind of um sort of esoteric kind of uh overwhelming spiritual experience that you can build up through through practice and it can it can take the place even for atheists of what you know um you know christian mystics might um might experience but at the same time that that kind of way of looking at the world also has great political balance because it um if we can expand that way of seeing like directly experiencing potential around us expand that beyond objects expand that into ourselves as a whole and then expand that into more sort of like abstract kind of uh you know how we understand social systems how we understand organizations how we understand a, a city any kind of like larger scale organization um then once we start seeing and imagining the potentials in things always being there um then it helps to break us out of this kind of, you know, there is no alternative capitalist realism, this um, this sense of the world heading in a direction that we have no hope of controlling. It, it opens up political possibility. Um, and so that's why I find this notion of, of potential and the infinity of potential and its embodiment to be such a powerful concept, both, like I say, on, on a personal kind of spiritual and also collective political um, way. Yeah, um, we should. That's an awesome place to stop for some music, I think. Um, Langdon, do you want to um, introduce 
shiny thing. Uh, I, I forget the name of the band you, you Radiant play. Knife. Man, you Radiant are a knife. Ooh, shiny ooh, thing. Absolute, absolute whiff. Uh, incredible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was responding to the infinite potential for that band to be called anything. Um, <laughs> it was actually a very spiritual yeah. experience for me to get that name wrong. Yeah, it's actually I'm I'm uh, I'm foreshortening uh, the phenomenology of your spirit right now. Yeah, Hegel, Hegel be frowning. <laughs> Not very dialectical, if you did. That's right. Not very dialectical. I'm, I'm, I'm fucking up. Um, yep. Lennon's gonna cut through my head with a uh, 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 what is it the uh, the Chinese cavalry uh, uh, halberds that they used in the Three Kingdoms period. Because uh, he's like chill, he, he chilling with Guan Yu. He doing it. Yeah, I I know it. Um, so yeah, this is a band called Radiant Knife. Um, they are uh impossibly up my alley in that they are a combination of like a very like hardcore driven sense of sludge metal. So like the sense of like intense angularity and like the weird fucked up chords that you'd get uh from from that end. And the sense of like aggression. Uh, so sometimes we hear sludge metal and we think something uh, closer to like stoner metal or, or like psychedelic stuff. Not that I don't like that, but this is that much more foregrounded and aggressive thing, uh, partly because they're a duo. But they're also super duper mathy, like prog in the sense of the time signature changes every bar and it's always something weird and fucked up. Um, feels very much like if uh, if Jesus Lizard wanted to kill themselves. Uh, uh, which for me, that's a, that's a great sell. That's like, ooh, that's a powerful band. Mm -hmm. Nice. It's also like uh, deeply progressive stuff that uses it as that destabilizing element, the same way that like King Crimson did, where it's because you can use it to make you know immense things of beauty, and there there is something really powerful in that. But this is more a like. You never know where this is going to land. I want you to feel um, freaked out and aggressed upon. Uh, it, it is whips. Um, they just put out a new record called Pressure. Um, I liked their stuff before. I was like, I'd defend it in private, but I never really like went out of my way to like show it to people. This one punched me in the fucking mouth. Love this record. Um, as much as I want to play the song, Phil Collins was right, uh, mostly because of the title. Um, the song itself is great, but that title is perfect. I think going with the opening track, Slumber, is what we're going to do. Because that's a, it's the thing that kicks off the record. It's the thing that will tell you within about 30 seconds whether this band is your band. Cool. So uh, this is Slumber by uh, Radiant Knife.
Okay, and back into it. That was Slumber by Radiant Knife. Um, because I because I put the music in after I we record this, I don't know if that was as fucked up as Legend says it was. I'm going to assume it was. In which <laughs> case, you're welcome. Um, now, what's really fucked up is we don't actually edit it in after. We, we do it live, so Gareth knows and is lying to you. And to me. He's withholding <laughs> this information. True. That's not true. <laughs> Okay. believe his one, lies one of us is lying and the other <laughs> one is telling the truth <laughs> okay. your, riddle, your riddle for this episode has <laughs> yeah, we should have a riddle part of the episode we, we mean, uh, maybe that's the next step in uh, the evolution of the show is more riddles <laughs> that's um, right. have, have a confounding period where it's no longer <laughs> about leftism books or music it's just about riddles and we become the world's <laughs> first gnome cast <laughs> oh okay. shit i have a theme song if we do that that's a hat of red and sky blue joke and hat of red and sky blue joke no. and, and hey, just over uh, and over <laughs> no god no <laughs> there is not enough weed in the world to make me care about that okay no we're gnomes okay. now um so back on topic though <laughs> Oh, 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 I've got a great uh, name for a, uh, a leftist gnome podcast. Noam Chomsky. I, anyway. I'm, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to shoot you with a gun. <laughs> See, I'm in America, so I, we, got, we got guns aplenty. I, got, I, I trip over guns trying to get to my guns. Anyway. Um, I, want to talk, I, want, I want to talk about what it means to be spiritual. Because um, you, you were saying earlier how... You know, you, you've both experienced things that have brought you into a um, an encounter with being able to look at the world and not have it be purely materialist anymore. There has to be something else, that kind of feeling. And I don't know, it's just because I've been very lucky so far. I, I just don't have a spiritual side to me. Maybe I've got no soul. Maybe I'm just dumb. <laughs> but I, well, you are Welsh. Yeah, that that is the spiritual side. I think it's just my connection <laughs> to the the heart of the dragon. Um, but yeah, I, I I seem to exist perfectly happily with no spiritual side to my life. I don't need to meditate and barely even do yoga. Um, but so am I, I? Am I missing out? Am I? I'm less than human if I'm not spiritual at all. Do, do I need that spiritual side to me? I should just say yes and just leave it at that. <laughs> that would be funny. I would be lying, but it would be funny to be like, yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, you are less than human, Gareth. Yes. Yeah, I've been we're, saying that for years. <laughs> we should be able to, allowed to hunt you for sport. <laughs> so I guess I guess um, one way of approaching that, in, in, in this sort of project, the way that I approach the notion of of spirituality is actually yes there are you know distinct um experiences that we can have which we we can recognize as being you know what we might call a religious experience or a spiritual experience and that is clearly different to our day-to-day -day sort of um functioning but it's not like a very neat split and the the core aspects as I as I take it of of a spiritual experience are actually things which are kind of more fundamental to all experience. Um, I would say that there's actually no such thing, at least uh, as I'm approaching the, the 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 concept of spirituality. There is no one who is not a spiritual person. There are just 
different intensities of how you experience that. So I take sort of spirit, the, the spiritual to be this kind of um, the connection between um, well, what, I, what I refer to as metaphysics, ethics and embodiment, which is broadly, you know, that the the unseen structures of the world that we experience um but but cannot directly experience um how we direct our life um, how we make decisions both in the moment and over sort of a long-term path and just our very kind of experience as embodied beings like uh, that we exist in the world that we feel that we act and are acted upon the spiritual for me is when these three these three aspects are interacting um, and are sort of aligning and are, are increasing in intensity of that that feeling, um, and all of those are are things that we every single person makes decisions. Every single person um, has a body, and every single person has some cognition of an unseen world, even in just like a very kind of brute material sense of you know i don't know what's behind the the table that i can see in front of me but i am implicitly sort of like imagining it i'm implicitly aware of the being a world beyond my immediate senses um and so yes like i said uh, there's therefore no such thing as a completely 100 unspiritual person and there's also no hard kind of division between people who have those intense experiences and people who don't it's it's a it's a possibility for all people what i would say is that it's not like 100% necessary for people to have those kind of experiences those really intense spiritual experiences but they can be very powerful for changing your mind about things about they can be very powerful for directing you by for giving you strength for giving you um you know, drive to do certain things. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of people, even if they wouldn't consider themselves spiritual, can have, have you know, have these kind of momentary sort of a quasi kind of religious experiences, even you know, things like football matches or watching a particular film or even just like, you know, seeing a particularly beautiful view in the countryside. It can trigger these kind of these moments where everything seems to come together, where we have this kind of sense of the enormity of the world, and it creates this really powerful feeling inside us, and that gives us a sense of, wow, I should, you know, it kind of reorients us in a way into how we're looking at the world around us. It changes how we might think we should be acting. It, it and ties I a lot. That... It ties a lot, I think, as well into into sort of the phenomenology of and of wonder and mm -hmm. specifically the humility that comes from wonder so one thing that i mentioned and this is this actually this is more me speaking directly to you gareth because like again at, at my core i am an atheist i think when we die we're gone i don't think that there's spirits or angels things like that i, I simply don't think that they're real but this doesn't alter certain experiential things in which like i have intermittent less frequent now but intermi intermittent dreams of my father where we have conversations um and in those conversations i am readily aware that he's been gone for an amount of time he's aware and in those dreams there's a level of continuity of like previous dream conversations we've had now i know in my heart of hearts this is not 
a ghost visiting me. But um, goddamn if it doesn't feel like it. Um, and there, there's a certain level of like, I don't feel a need to differentiate. It, it's sort of like waking up from a film that, that moves you tremendously or waking up from a novel. Like you don't close it and go, now I need to remember none of these events were real. Um, so I need to shut out its effect. Um, but it, like I, I can I can balance both of those capacities. There's also the secondary thing of like, so I uh, like like many uh, dweebus new age types, I really like uh, kismet and coincidences. Um, unlike them, I don't necessarily credit it to anything. But it's precisely because of the fact that there isn't an ordering mechanism that generates these coincidental occurrences that for me makes them more magical. Like they're not forced by some weird authorial hand. It is a clear and uh, like legitimate fluke that in all the potential arrangements of things that my brother and I share a birthday despite the fact that we were born three years apart. Um, that's a really intense level of coincidental bond that during the period in which we had, uh, to be very brief and to avoid triggering stuff, an intensely fraught relationship, this was torturous. And now that we've reconciled as adults and have a really strong uh, um, fraternal bond, this is immensely, this provides an immense amount of sucker that I really can't like convey. It's, it's not really a material sense. It's just, it's this way in which uh, through through wonder and potentiality, this bond is reaffirmed. Likewise, I mentioned before we started the show, last week I had what I call my negative anniversary, which was a very serious suicide attempt of mine, and that a year later to the day, my father passed away. Um, so again, a very brutal and intense level of uh, coincidence that layers those two events over the exact same day. Um, and in some material sense, there there really isn't a reason why those two things are tied. But again, goddamn if it doesn't feel that way internally. Um, and so it's a lot of a lot of that level of spirit allowing yourself to have spiritual experience is less like now I have to think angels are real and like they're constantly fucking with things, um, and more allowing that sense of. Um, wonder and humility in like because there there is something immensely like it uh it sweeps the legs out from under you and all the things that you thought you had a firm grasp on it, it's it, uh there's a, a running joke about um people who've lost a parent that you get like brought into a certain kind of club uh because there is a, there's an existential thing that happens to you. It's very similar, actually, to what happens when someone becomes a parent and they look at their kid and they go, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not going to be here forever. One day that it's going to be this kid's world and not mine. That same kind of de um, decentering thing happens, a parallel of it when you lose a parent, that you don't always necessarily realize that some part of your brain uses them as this fundamental force that orders the world by by nature because they they pre-existed you for from your experiential lens they may as well have been eternal like a mountain and then all of a sudden you wake up and like a continent is gone um and this like triggers some kind of mental turnover in your head 
of uh, both like finality and finitude. Um, I don't know. It, it it tills the soil mentally in a very specific way. Uh, not that yeah, people should go out of their way to have dead parents. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, it that, humbles you. That all that all sort of points to what I I find as like the the sort of inadequacy of of um, supposedly sort of hyper rational kind of ways of of understanding, uh, you know, religious experience or just understanding, you know, human feeling in general is there's, it kind of, it's not actually, it's not rational enough when people say, oh, well, you know, there's these experiences that people have, you know, there's no God, there's no spirit world, therefore they're rubbish. Therefore, you know, I'm not going to, um, countenance them. I'm not going to do anything to try experience them. That for me isn't rational enough. The the hyper really hyper rational way of approaching it is saying, yeah, okay, I don't believe any of that stuff. But I also believe that human beings feel that it's real, that it, that it and that it, it has an effect on them. So I am going to deliberately induce these things in me, even though I don't believe in them, to experience them and to experiment with my body as a system, because I am able to, you know, um, look upon myself as a system that I can make interventions in and to try and shape it in a different way. And if that means inducing a religious uh, experience, even though rationally I don't believe it, if I experience, you know, uh, a, uh, some kind of union with God um, and that affects how I act, if that makes, that it sort of empowers me in some way, if that makes, if that cures my depression, then that's a good thing. Like, uh, that's a hyper-rational way of approaching it to me. It's um, to understand ourselves as systems that we can intervene in. And like you said, I really, I really like this, the example of, you know, suspending your disbelief in, in, in watching films. It's, it's really annoying. Like, um, when it's, it's a, it's a very sort of teenage Reddit atheist kind of thing to like watch a film and be like, well, of course it's not actually real. So it's very silly to have any feelings when you watch a film. It's like, well, well, you deliberately <laughs> suspend disbelief, don't you? Though we we go out of our way to have these experiences, so why not experiment with your with your body and spiritual kind of experiences? I also and find I think... it find it intriguing that you'd say what you did, Gareth, on account of we did an eight part series on the Invisibles. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> that was a good comic. I didn't have a didn't like uh, have a union with a godhead because of it. I just, I'm like, that's what it, I, I did. Part of it's like, I don't, you like Moby Dick, right? Yeah, the, Moby Dick. I don't, how, how, I'm, I'm just, I'm intrigued that someone can be like, <laughs> yeah, I really love Moby Dick. It moves me into tears. I don't, I don't let any of the spiritual component of Moby Dick in. I keep that at arms. Like, <laughs> I understand the spiritual component of it. I, I, I mean, I, I've had, I'm not, I don't even know if I call them spiritual experiences, but I, there have been times in my life when I felt that the sort of things that Graham has, has spoken about and the unity between the metaphysical, ethical, and embodied parts of myself. Like, even a few weeks ago, um, <coughs> hiking in the Pennines, there's this weird little spot called uh, the Mermaid's Pool that's um, just like a upper, upper hill. It's really difficult to get to. Um, it's just a, like a flat expanse of water about the size of a basketball court. 
and it's completely black. Uh, there's no things living in there apart from a few frogs and tadpoles, and um, yeah, it's just like a black expanse of water up a hill. And yeah, when me and my son go there, we I don't know we it, we can sometimes just sit and look at it for a while, and it's not like an, an intense you know moment of um, nirvana or something. It's it's just like a a, a vibe that's so chill that it borders on the spiritual. Yeah, is the nearest I can I can say to it. But um, yeah, that's if it, the closest things in my life that I've got to 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 something like that are probably that don't involve like mushrooms. Um, are probably things like that. But I mean, if we're talking about what you were just uh, saying about experimenting. For, reaching these states then apart from mushrooms and hiking what other ways are there to to feel this for ourselves and and is are there any political ways like can we experience them on on a picket line or a man man in barricades or something yeah um well i mean given given um you know the sort of the the context of this podcast one, one that uh um that I have actually experienced quite a lot in the past is through music, um, through listening to music and performing music. Um, particularly uh, when, when we were talking about something, um, I started thinking about Sun, uh, the band Sun, and mm, yeah. you know how they're often sort of like talked about, uh, and they have this kind of um, you know these these visuals that are sort of like quasi sort of spiritual. And I think when people talk in that, they 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 sort of. I I think they approach it as though it's like a metaphor to, to call it a religious experience or a spiritual experience. But I would I would want to take that quite serious um, seriously. You know, if you, um, if you were watching this band, particularly, you know, when they play extremely loud and it's felt in the whole body and it has this kind of totalizing effect and it's just this you know, extreme experience. It's anything like that can push us to this kind of um, to to a sort of boundary um, within within a context of safety. I think that's you know um, that this notion of, of the sublime has that kind of implication that we're testing the boundaries of things and we're reaching the boundaries of our experience and and our what we can maybe what we can tolerate or. Um, but it's within a context where we're not actually fearing for our lives necessarily. We're we're in some kind of a relatively safe space, and there's that kind of that conflict between our the part of us that is overwhelmed is is uh, is, is feeling a kind of a, a sort of low level fear, maybe or maybe even quite a strong fear. But yeah, at the I... same time, we rationally know that there is no real um, there is nothing is actually threatening us. I think we can find a lot of that through literature and, and film and music. Um, yeah, you mentioned um, Sunday because it just reminded me. I, I saw them absolutely years ago now, 15, 20 years ago almost. And they at a quite big festival. And um, I think Attila Cesar Cihar from um, Mayhem was doing the vocals and he had put on this like costume. Um, was, it, <laughs> was it the mirror suit? Uh, it, uh, no, it was a different thing. He had these like um, he had these like laser fingers. Like every yes. finger was a laser pointer. But he, he also had this like headpiece on, which was like um, 
like horns, but also trees. Um, he basically yeah. looked like a, like a pagan deity. And if you, you've you've heard him sing, quote unquote, you know he's he's got a very distinct way of singing. It's very um, it it does sound like religious pagan intonations of something like he's invoking something. And I, I remember feeling in this at this like music festival when I was hanging out with my friends, like like a sort of profound fear. Like almost mm. like holy terror that I was seeing something um blasphemous and un un uncanny in the kind of Freudian and Heimlich sense. And um yeah, that kind of reminded me of that experience. So I guess I, I have religious experiences all the time, I'm just I just don't notice them. I mean yeah, it's not- a lot of it, I think, comes again down to we, we have this induced phraseology. This is something I resonated quite a lot with in your text is that we have a we have this induced phraseology from certain vulgar approaches to materialism um, in the Western left, where we feel obligated to go out of our way to strike out spirituality. Um, do frankly do a really bad read of what Marx meant when he talked about mystification. It's like a lot of people took that like way over literally. Um, same with uh, the way in which we have misidentified and misused the phraseology of religion being the opiate of the masses, where we tend to read that as like stupefying them rather than giving them succor and comfort in uh, yeah. places of intense pain, which is which is what Marx meant by it as well. Um, it, it's weird that we we. Co- we do the Nietzsche thing where we cut out the part both before and after the quoted part. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, we wind up um, as someone who's felt a lot of, a lot of this stuff. That's something that I felt a great sense of like comfort and camaraderie in your text with of this notion of uh, the frustration of witnessing people seem to, because it arises it feels like it's arising more out of a sense of shame of judgment that people don't want to be viewed as less than or less intellectually capable, especially in left space. So they will go out of their way to make sure everyone around them knows, no, I'm not going to go around believing in ghosts or whatever, especially because of, again, um, very well-intentioned, but I think ultimately slightly uh, misled reads of say like Adorno's discussion of new age, um, uh new age mysticism mm. uh that that, that can fascist. open the yeah that can open the door uh to fascist thought that like it, it's not that that potentiality isn't there but again looping back to that point is that people mistake a good critical theorist pointing out one of the avenues that is contained within this potentiality and goes this is the only avenue contained within that potentiality yeah. um we see the same annoying habit when as much as I as much as it lifts my spirit in a certain way when I hear the 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 rallying cry of communism will win, there's another part of me that wants to shout back that like we don't know that. We're building it, it we're building ironically a secular version of the negative end of the uh uh I forget what the term for the study of the end of the world is. Um, 
yeah, eschatology. We, we do see basically a communist eschatology where we're like, oh, well, communism is fated and there will be a final conflict and it will, uh, we will triumph. And I'm like, you're literally, you're doing the same structures that are present within the negative aspects of religiosity, um, but have just swapped out, like, instead of the domain of Christ, that's the domain of communism. Um, and, but we still get a new Jerusalem. We still get Judgment Day. We still get all these things. Um, I, and we've, we've talked about that. Um, me and you, Gareth, have talked about that before, of that weird uh, apocalypticism that becomes like a rabid or gleeful apocalypticism. And yet these oh. other mundane or positivist or, um, like existentially reinforcing aspects of the lay spiritual experience people feel this pathological need to strike out mm. yeah you can you, not uh, astrology is fashionable believing in a final conflict where all the bad people are going to get judged and all the good people are going to live in perfectly forever that's 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 actually praxis um like, like when I read the absolute fucking asinine horseshit about like fully automated uh, communism and how it's like a faded development, and I'm like, what kind of fucking world do you live in? That this is like, yeah, we make this, and then everything's good forever. There's no more problems. So I think on, the on magic that note, in which, yeah, dialectics stop. <laughs> it just it stops. No more dialectics. <laughs> on that, what you were saying about. Um when a sort of a, a theorist sort of breaks open an idea and it focuses on on some some small aspect of the potential of something and then that is taken by people as sort of like an absolute rejection of it, it in any kind of form i i think this i mean it goes back to kind of what we were saying before about the the sort of the false simplicity of things um um i think it's not it's not a term i use in in the book but I feel like there's often um, this kind of tendency to a kind of um, almost like tick box kind of thinking that people find a kind of comfort. And I, I completely understand it. And I'm sure I do it on some level that you find a kind of comfort in having an easy answer, um, even if it's even if it's a, an easy answer, which someone has come come to after some, you know, complex thinking and complex wrangling or maybe somebody else has done that it's kind of comforting to have this single yes, no at the end. And it kind of comes down to something that I talk a little bit about in the book. I'm not sure if, I think I might've taken the term out actually, but the, something that is um, I think quite important is this, this idea that people have, uh, they get a sort of security, an ontological security out of their ideas about the world and sort of having a, a, a relatively stable sense of what things are, what things are good, what things are bad, how things are arranged. And that coming under sort of scrutiny or falling apart is you know, the borderline, what can be a traumatic kind of experience to to lose your sense of reality um, from the big to the small. And I think that includes, you know, the big things like, you know, are we looked over by a God and down to small things like, you know, can I just say this is good or this is bad on on some political kind of dispute? Um, but I guess what was sort of what I'm trying to get people to do in the book is almost deliberately um, feel a little ontologically insecure, but to sort of like sit with that uh, and to sort of like to see where that goes. 
Um, I, this is something I always think about, like uh, when it comes to, you know, Marxist propaganda, <clears throat> or Marxist sort of like things that are aimed at maybe a, a, a more popular audience is that the sort of the dialectical process of coming to a position of, of, of the method of going through an analysis is usually done in the more sort of like background, in the more sort of academic side of things, even if we're not talking about necessarily a university. You know, we could be talking about people outside of any institution, but this more sort of like uh, intellectual kind of uh, side is where all the dialectics happens and then you come up with the answers and then you put the answers in in like a uh, an article that can be read easily by a popular audience but the dialectical method is completely gone and so what you're actually just giving people is answers rather than um, a way of thinking and I think spreading the way of thinking the, the way of analyzing the way of perceiving is actually much more important in the long term than actually giving specific answers to specific questions because then it's not an audience watching a dialectical process between two or three intellectuals it is spreading the dialectic it's growing it across a, a wider sort of um uh, community of people and just to make a completely completely separate point before i lose it i was really glad that you 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 found you said you found uh, comfort and comradeship in in his parts and parts of the book and just to answer the the question i think it, gareth had earlier was about um uh the different ways in which you can have um these kind of like sublime experiences um but in a political form it's something that I, I end up focusing on in the book, the, the book is the notion of comradeship and how we experience comradeship and how it is it can be this sort of full-bodied joyful um this kind of this whole embodied process and it's often the term comrade can be used in a very just kind of like rationalistic kind of way it's like a recognition that the other person has the same ultimate goals as you and you say oh yeah comrade um, but I think we 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 can lean into the more sort of like actually felt joyfulness of comradeship with other people. Um, and that's a way in the, which it can spread beyond being, you know, individual spiritual practice, which I think, uh, you know, I think is good and is has lots of um, uh, potential to it. But ultimately, I'm not trying to advocate for an individualist spirituality it's it's got to also have a collective side to it and there are lots of ways that could be practiced like i've i've experimented with having um radical mindfulness groups where you know we do we do mindfulness but we sort of like think of it in terms of like marxist dialectical materialism rather than you know this sort of like uh pseudo you know non kind of Buddhist sort of, but like, but with all the kind of interesting stuff stripped out, Western mind, uh, mindfulness kind of thing, just like plonk some dialectical materialism in there instead, and you get pretty much the same sort of thing with everything's in process, everything's relational. So that's like, you know, one way you can do it is through experimenting with appropriating spiritual forms. But it, like, like you said, it can just be stuff like at protests, at meetings, uh, just hanging out with comrades. Podcasts, maybe, maybe we could have a spiritual experience now through <laughs> the intense feeling of joyful comradeship between us. Um, but yeah, there, uh, I think it's 
it's just about sort of like intensifying that embody embodiment that that experience in any kind of forum that we can find to do it in awesome all right that's an awesome place to leave things because um yeah i think that that sums up the your book very well there and um so where can people find red enlightenment and um because i know you're also doing i think some podcasting around it and I know you're very active on Instagram around these kind of ideas. So, um, yeah, the book itself uh, is you can get it from uh, Repeater Books, the Repeater Books website. You can obviously get it from less ethical places like Amazon. I'll leave that up to, <laughs> to your listeners where they, where they want to get it from. But um, Repeater Books is the best place to get that. There is a podcast which was basically like the first draft of the book. Uh, the book is much better, but uh, you can listen to the podcast. Uh, just just search for it. It's somewhere on SoundCloud. I think uh, the repeat repeater books have a um, or repeater radio have a SoundCloud. I think with all eight or nine episodes on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've started I've started an Instagram for the book. I haven't really pushed it very much, and I'm not using it very much on there. But you can follow me on my personal Instagram if you want. It's on a live cook. I just I just post about what I'm eating. It's not very interesting, but um, if you want if you want to be pals, I'm there. Um, and yeah, and I'm working on. I I am technically it's it's a little bit on pause, but I am technically working on a short kind of companion book. Um, on radical mindfulness in case anyone wants to experiment along with me with that particular kind of um, that way of exploring um, secular spirituality. Um, I don't know when that's going to be finished, but it, it should be a much shorter book, you know, sort of 10 or 15,000 words, um, hopefully in the next year or two. And yeah. Awesome. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, folks at home, this is highly, highly recommended by us. Um, oh, yeah. Everything Repeater does is pretty much gold, even a crooked book. Um, but yeah, this this we we kind of knew from the off this was going to be right up our alley, and it totally is. Um, yeah, we can't do the sheer amount of ideas in the book justice in like a one-hour show, especially when we need to talk about dumb shit and uh, play music. So, but um, we're going to leave off with a, a band. I, I think if you were trying to have a spiritual experience. Uh, seeing a band live and you didn't want to go through the traditional things of bands like sun or sun ra um i think you could you could probably get a pretty good spiritual experience out of these guys probably probably bring one out of out of baroness oh yeah uh Langdon, do you want to you're the bigger fan than me so you you take it away on 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 these guys so I got really lucky and I encountered them right when Red Album came out. I uh, So anyone who's been a metal fan for a while will know the twofold thing. One, oh, we love album art. Oh, we love it. We'll judge a book by its cover right away. Oh, you give me a good cover, that's a good record. I don't care what it sounds like. Except, except if I buy something that's got some dope-ass album art and then I put it on and it's fucking metalcore. Because it's there was a window in time where every record that had a really sick cover in the metal section, you'd put it in and you'd hear the same bullshit breakdowns. And I'd go, fuck! And I'd have to go sell the CD. Um, so I'm in Best Buy and I see this absolutely fucking gorgeous album art. And it's like for fans of like Explosions in the Sky um, and Black Sabbath and uh like just listing a bunch of stuff all of which i love and i'm like i don't know how a band would fit all that together it sounds sick 
and I had the wherewithal to call up my girlfriend who is at home and have her Google the band and tell me about them to make sure they were not metalcore. And it turns out this is Red Album. Mm-hmm. So I buy it and I'm blown the fuck away. This is insanely, um, that level of spiritualism comes a lot from the way that they would incorporate um, like uh, post-rock and uh, progressive stuff and punk stuff into that like uplifting mode. And I've just followed them ever since. I got to see them um, when they were, Gareth, check out this bill. It was a weird time when in America, Opeth was touring as the headlining act with High on Fire as primary opener and Baroness as the uh, first opener. Holy shit. Um, Yeah. Those are all like headlining bands. Weird bill, but fucking incredible. And this is right when Red Album had come out and me and all my friends left going, Baroness blew the other two bands out of the water, which for anyone who knows them, like that's, that's insane that you would be able to blow either one of those bands uh, out, especially with an opener slot. So I followed them ever since. They're fucking incredible. Absolutely love them. They like the way that they meld like country and Southern rock and like post-punk and prog and math rock and post-rock and all these things. It's fucking perfect to me. Um, And most excitingly, now that they've finished their whole color uh, arc, um, uh, fuck you, it's orange, not green and gold. You can't, or uh, gray and gold. You can't trick me. Um, They have a new record coming out called Stone. And uh, for anyone who's been a fan of them for a while, the bit, the only complaint of their past couple records with their newer lineup has been the mastering is brick walled to shit. Like it just, it sounds bad. It's, it's hard to listen to. Um, the songs are great, but the mastering is really, really tough. And the thing that really fucking thrills me about this upcoming record is the mastering has been fixed. It sounds good. And it turns out that if you make Baroness sound good, they already write great songs and put in great performances. So it's going to be fantastic. Um, did you decide on which one of the two songs from um, Stone? How about uh, Last Word? Last so Word kind of, kind of is, chunky. Yeah. That one's a much more traditional Baroness song. Um, it feels a lot specifically like the material of theirs from their first couple EPs and Red Album in terms of being a lot heavier again a lot more riff oriented um a lot more metallic uh over the past couple of records they've been leaning a lot more into really anthemic complex and progressive uh more or less like heavy alternative music rather than necessarily metal um not that metal wasn't in there this one feels metal again in a very similar way that like hushed and grim from mastodon felt like mastodon playing mastodon songs again so yeah, we're gonna uh, go out to Last Word by Baroness. Uh, come back real soon because we're gonna be doing we'll be, be doing some more um, Michael Moorcock stuff. We'll be getting, getting groovy with that. Um, you get to hear some more of like um, really good uh, Austin Powers impressions. Oh yeah, um, just the top the top of the heap. Yeah, just, <laughs> it's like uh, Michael Moore or whatever his name is is in the studio with me. Um, Michael Myers. That's the guy from Halloween. Um, and um, uh, yeah, we're also going to be doing Penance by Eliza Clark. Um, that just came out. It's so good, guys. Oh my God. You think um, 
uh, Boy Parts was good. This is so this is real good. Um, uh, got Isabel Wadener. Her new book is out. It's weird as fuck. Oh my my god, it's so weird. Just so bizarre. Um, Brandon Taylor's book, which is not weird at all. It's very normal, but also brilliant. He's an amazing writer. Um, yeah, so much stuff going on. But first, A, um, go and buy uh, Red Enlightenment from the Repeater Books website. And B, uh, the soundtrack of you doing that will be Last Word by Baroness. <laughs> <laughs> 